0: Well hello once again and uh, welcome to another edition of Pod of the Gaps, uh, the podcast that aims to engage cultural issues and challenging questions of the day from a fresh Christian perspective with a bit of wit and banter uh, there to season uh, the wisdom and hopefully the insight. I'm uh, Andy Bannister and as ever I am uh, joined uh, by my uh, well, friends, partners in crime, you can decide what the best description is for them is uh michael otts and uh aaron edwards michael aaron how are you uh how are you lads doing today
1: we're in mourning andy how
0: could
1: you how could you even need to ask how we're doing we're in mourning yeah. for the fact that football
0: did
2: not come home as it was supposed to well yeah. that's right
0: so yeah M- michael are you also are you also grieving
2: yeah, I mean, obviously you're north of the border, Andy. So there was probably great celebrations on on Sunday night at about eleven PM in Scotland. But uh, yes, down here, um, a great sense of uh, national sadness, I'm afraid, pervades the yeah. the atmosphere.
0: Well, it was interesting. I was I was I was kind of camping with the kids and the family on the on the weekend. We drove back on Sunday afternoon, you know, before the big game, and driving back from you know through uh, some of the rural parts of Scotland near where we live. I did notice there were quite a lot of Italian flags. Uh, there were a smaller number of English <laughs> flags. At least one or two may have been on fire. That may be my imagination. Um, but, yes, uh, uh, alas, football didn't go home. It went to Rome, right? I know. Uh, I was
1: eating, uh, and I was eating uh, pizza whilst watching the match, and I drank an Italian beer. It's your it
0: fault. Like, it it's all your kind of fault. Intense. It's
2: all your fault. Yeah. Look at that. Yeah. What What do you expect? I know. I didn't have to say it was quite funny. When I was watching the semi final, we had to watch the semi final on ITV because BBC didn't have the rights for that particular semi final. And clearly, the ITV commentators had been told at the end, kind of as it looked like England were going to go through, do all you can to try and get people to watch the final on ITV because you had a choice, didn't you, BBC or ITV? Yeah, yeah. And so they were saying things like, um, don't change anything, you know, we've obviously, you know, it's good luck that what you've done in the semi-final, so, you know, make sure you sit in the same chair, watch the same channel, <laughs> all the rest of it, <laughs> and um, I mean, the commentary oh, was so horrifically crap. bad, actually, by the end, I thought there was no reason why I'd ever watch ITV if I had a choice, but, you know.
1: I actually have to say, I, I like the I like the punditry on ITV better, because they're a bit edgier, they're Oh, a bit really? too, like, They're a bit too conservative on BBC. I I feel like they still have this element of needing to say the right thing. And I think you've got got Roy Keane, who's an Irish, aggressive Irish player, who literally just says whatever he thinks, which is a lot more fun. (laughs) How you up with the adverts, don't you? And then you've got the, Mm. the, uh, yeah, the commentary sometimes is a little bit more exciting too. But anyway.
2: They don't feel feel any sense of like, we have to say the right thing. Um, (laughs) There was a bit as well just before the end when they were about to win. And the commentator getting a bit carried away said, do whatever you want tonight, kids. Stay up, go out, break the rules, do whatever you want. And obviously someone had then whispered in his earpiece that that may be not the most appropriate thing to tell everyone in the country at that moment in time. And so he said, anything you want.
1: He literally was like saying, I'm overriding all parental authority right now. And government
2: guidelines, COVID restrictions and the rest.
0: (laughs) And I have to say, as a non- If you're listening to this and you're thinking, can they get on with the show? Because I'm not a football fan. I share your pain. I mean, I, rather (laughs) than watch football on Sunday night, I just watched international pan wrestling live from Cleethorpe. So a much underrated uh, sport. But actually, there is a link. We always try and do a link for you, so regular listeners. We always try, but the, the link always
1: appears. Trying always appear,
0: doesn't it? And uh, yeah, so you know, regular listeners of the show will go, yeah, okay. We sit through the banter, and then we know we can hear the grating of gears, like the like the beautiful sound of a handful of gravel being dropped into the gearbox <laughs> of a Porsche. Uh, the gears <laughs> have changed, and the topic comes. And so, the topic we want to talk about today. Uh, is the whole topic of, of race and, uh, and and racism and the racialization of, of politics and poi some not uh, not lightweight themes but there is of course a link because when the football match ended uh, on Sunday night when the euros ended and uh, you know there was all the celebration the Italians were doing the kind of things they do of course sadly what happened was some English football fans um, behaved in outrageously racist ways uh tweeted particularly some horrendous things about some particularly the black players uh in the english side and of course then what happened that whole story went nuts that was that was the main press story uh and a lot of the news, news sources on the monday was not you know that you know the fact that it's very sad that england lost this tournament but was you know look at how bad a society we are and look at the, the racism so we thought it would be hugely important to to do a show looking at some of the themes here i'm very conscious that you know there are so many things we could talk about about here probably we're not going to talk so much on this podcast about you know why racism is wrong and 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 so forth we take that as a given we've covered some of that stuff on the on the show in the past about you know the fact that particularly the the underpinning i think the bible gives to human rights and justice and dignity and uh, and why racism is just completely antithetical to that but we're also interested about about some of the ways that I think racism has been politicized and tied into other issues in our society. And I guess one of the first questions I'd want to put to one of you gentlemen to have a a crack at as we as we ease into this this topic would be, of course, I'm very intrigued about the connection to social media here. Because the, the part of me is worried whether, you know, yes, there is an issue with some, a tiny minority of football fans mm-hmm. and racism. And that just absolutely needs dealing with. But I felt very sad on Monday for all the football fans. I have h- mm-hmm. many, many friends who are committed football fans who are mm-hmm. not racist in one iota, but they've been, you know, labeled with this potentially because of what a few idiots did. But then the way that social media amplified that, you know, in the past, if you were an idiot, you were an idiot and it was over. Now you're an idiot. The picture goes on Twitter. It gets magnified. The BBC ran a story on it, and that's the next day's news. So to what extent is social media caught up in, in some of this and the way that things are are, are reported is my first question to so maybe we could kick around like football, kick around.
2: Yeah, very, very good. Um, Thank you. But yeah, I guess that it's is really a bad, point. No. <laughs> but, uh, sorry, Aaron.
1: No, I was just saying it's very bad. You can't say it's a very good... It's a bad
2: panel. Actually, no, that will encourage him, and he'll be yeah, exactly. feeling like It will no encourage me. This is true. Then
1: will be a victim, though. You see, oh, but let's not get
2: into that. All right, going to yeah. kick into touch, but that would be the wrong kind of sporting metaphor. So oh. there we go. Anyway, but yeah, about social media, I, I, I think the thing that hit me is I was kind of scrolling through it, and you know, several days later, it's still it's still there, isn't it, in in the media feeds? Which was I would be absolutely unaware of any of these comments, um, even though I'm on Twitter. I'd be totally unaware of them unless it was the fact it had been picked up on reported on. Um as you say, they're horrific comments. Um, but actually they've now been amplified in a way because it's become the number one news story coming out of what's happened at the weekend. Um and we were saying before, we chatted, you know, the thing about Twitter is there's all sorts of horrific stuff on it. Like if you want if you want to be appalled, like just scroll through Twitter, just scroll through the comments on a YouTube video. But if we're going to make that the narrative and if we're going to make that the standard, it's tarring, as it were, you know, you know, hundreds of thousands of English football fans as if that is representative of them. And I just want to ask the question, is that representative of them? Are we then creating this impression? I'm not denying at all that there are probably some incredibly racist football fans out there. And that is horrific. But by by reporting it in the way that we do, have we kind of generated a story that's made it worse than it has and made it a bigger thing than it should have been yeah
1: i think michael i completely agree with that i think the mm-hmm. <clears throat> issue is that obviously the, there's racists in every country is supported and, and, and the media plays a huge part part in um in what we decide to accentuate and what we decide to minimize and not talk about um what makes the headlines i think in relation to the um last in the, kind of the euro 2020 final the weird Euro 2020 final, which took place in 2021, and you might be listening to this in 2022. Who knows? It's even more confusing. Um, But the fact that the three guys happened to be black who missed and the kind of idiotic comments that came up about that, Mm. I think there's even a sense in which um, those comments are reflective of a reaction against some of the Mm. way in which we we overhype. Race issues, especially in this country, to be careful we're going to get into this a little bit more about how it, it's different in different kind of cultural contexts, how we talk about this, but it's certainly the the, the way in which we view things racially that's not the first time like a black player has missed a penalty, but because of the narrative for England that is i mean most most English players miss penalties one time or <laughs> it's our national identity but the fact that people have made a, a racial connection, even stupidly. You know, nonchalantly, idiotically. I don't think they would have done that had it not been, um, firstly, the social media wouldn't, we hadn't sort of hyped this issue to the extent mm-hmm. that we see things through the lens of race, uh, whereas we wouldn't have done it pre- previously. Like, no one was saying this when, I don't know, Paul Lintz missed his penalty in 1998. I think it was, I think Ashley Young's penalty in Euro 2012. Um, and what, in fact, I think Ashley Young's was a decisive penalty. So it's kind of mm-hmm. like you think, That It wasn't that we had to see it through that lens. I don't think people made any comments about it at the time. But now we're in this kind of moment, historically, where we're seeing everything through this lens. I think that's the problem. There's that. There's also a sense in which, as you say, Andy, the social media way, the way in which it accentuates certain things, there was also footage online which looked absolutely horrendous of white fans beating people up inside Wembley Stadium. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is just awful. We've got a really... You know, we really do have to kind of uh, uh, speak about the atrocities of, of kind of racism and, effect, and and just brutality and violence where we see it, as, as much as we want to have a go at the, the problems of the narrativizing. Um, but that, even that was reported wrong. Like, these people looked like they were just racist thugs inside the stadium, beating up, like kicking an Asian in who was on the floor, this Asian guy on the floor, and they kind of kick him in. And there's a, a very prominent American scholar who talks a lot about race in New York who tweeted this and spoke about it and said, look, why would we even want football to take off in the US when the English fans are are capable of this kind of disgusting, abhorrent, racist behaviour? And the funny thing about it was, that wasn't, (laughs) it was stupid of these fans to be doing this, but they were sort of carrying out this weird vigilante uh, behaviour because they were actually kicking in and pushing anyone of any race because they were kicking in the people who ran into the stadium and, and kind of forced their way through the barriers. So we certainly I wouldn't condone, condone what they're doing. It's ridiculous what they were doing. But it, it was presented as a racial attack upon this Asian guy who was there, who was one of many people who kind of, you know, uh, unlawfully broke into the stadium. But that didn't matter because it didn't fit the narrative. And I was just thinking, wow, mm-hmm. you know, we don't need to go to town on that kind of stuff because it doesn't really matter either way, you know, how we defend the, the, the acts of certain or how the, the certain acts are represented there. But I do think it shows something, doesn't it? it indicates the narrative thing—the fact that what fits the narrative, we're going to tell you that. We're going to tell you about that. If it doesn't, we're just going to minimise it or not talk about it. And it just ends up in a kind of post-truth culture, which is what we've been living in for a few years now.
0: Mm. I think there's a lot to there's a lot to chew on there. Particularly as you as you said there Aaron, that connection to to kind of post-truth. I'm always, I was also struck by the fact that, and this connects to perhaps a couple of other episodes we've done in the past that's you know the way that the way that social media behaves fascinates me because you know on the one hand um you know during the covid pandemic you know that's been the phenomenon that you know many of us who've tried to occasionally you know tweet links to not crazy conspiracy theories but you know well credentialed scientists taking a different view to the mainstream for example the center for evidence based medicine folks in oxford who have had uh, you know been questioning some of the the lockdown stuff here in the UK, you tweet that and it's amazing how quickly the algorithm at Twitter, they take you down. You're, you're gone. Mm. That that tweet is 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 down the memory hole. Um, but yet the uh, the tech lords at Twitter don't seem to be able to write an algorithm that if somebody refers to Marcus Rashford and uses the N word as a racial slur, to me, that shouldn't be at all difficult to have the algorithms go, now that mm. tweet is gone. Um, mm. But no, apparently that wasn't the case. So mm-hmm. I find it fascinating The way that social media, you know, feel their ability, you know, feel the need to exercise their power to police certain parts of discourse, but but elsewhere stand back. And the cynic Mm -hmm. would say, uh, the cynic would say that you know we forget that behind social media, all the social media giants really want is eyeballs. They don't care whether it's good news, bad news, Mm -hmm. hateful, uh, peaceful. If it brings eyeballs in, their business model is Mm -hmm. they want your attention. That's what's Mm -hmm. being traded in. Uh, not what is right or good or noble, mm-hmm. which is interesting, right? Because the Bible tells yeah. us Christians, like all those things. But look, another question I wanted to throw out, which leads off what you said there, Aaron. I was very struck by when I watched the highlights of, of the game. I'm not a football fan, but I watched the news. So I wanted to see what happened. And that, uh you know, when that, particularly that last young uh, guy, is it, is it Saka, Saka is the Saka. last... Saka, thank yeah. you. As I'm not a football fan, so I, I yeah. am dragging it from my memory. Look, you, you know, the racist,
1: racist, You don't know his name. That's weird. There
0: we go. I could actually, I, yeah, I could picture him, but I couldn't remember the chap's That's name. It. But let's say I, I really am a, I am not a football fan in any shape or form. Um, when I saw him take the penalty, I, I felt really guilty because the first thought that went through my head was, oh, well, I guess they, they put him there because they were trying to create the story: young black British player, you know, oh. wins the the Euros. He's been chosen for his for the diversity lineup of those taking penalties, not for his skill. And then I felt very guilty for that. And then I found myself reflecting, actually, you know, it's notable now when I'm watching, say, you know, a TV show Mm. or a movie and say a black actor appears, there's that little voice at the back of your head Mm. now. Oh, they're there because this show needs diversity and they need three Mm. Asian actors, two black, black actors, one gay actor, you know, whatever. Whereas 20 years ago, whatever, I remember watching, you know, some of my favorite films have got mm. a quite by today's day, it's quite a diverse cast, but that didn't occur to me. So, you know, one of my favorite movies of all time, Shawshank Redemption, um, you know, Morgan Freeman, you know, one of the lead characters in there. Spectac- I can't remember if he won an Oscar. He should have done because it's an amazing mm. performance. But you didn't watch that film going, oh, yeah, Morgan's cast because they wanted a, mm. a black actor. It was just Morgan Freeman. And to this day, he's one of my favorite actors. He's, he's not one of my favorite black actors. He's one of my favorite actors Mm-hmm. full stop but how have we gone from that time or, or am i right in going that we, we've somehow changed from you know we see people for the ability they bring to the game or their ability as an actor on the screen to okay actually now you know their immutable characteristic their race or their gender or whatever becomes you know a controlling part of why they are there am i am i being overly cynical or is it an issue but
2: i mean i I can certainly see where you're coming from because and I think it's in a sense a reasonable thought process to have because when not so much necessarily in the football, but just in, in life in general, you know, when we have kind of people's job title is, you know, we need to ensure that we have diversity as in like we need to like literally have you know, X number of this and X number of that or whatever then you do start to ask the questions, you know, is that person there because they are the best person or is it because they are filling kind of a, a quota? Um, and I guess that's one of my issues, I'd say, with the difference between what we, what I would say was a good thing, which is a quality of opportunity, and what I would say is a bad thing, which is a quality of outcome. Um, I think absolutely we need to say, are there barriers that stand in the way of certain segments of society getting into this profession or achieving, you know, their maximum potential in this area of life. Absolutely. That's really important to do. Um, my wife's an airline pilot. She's one of 5% of airline pilots who are female in BA. And, you know, she says, actually one thing she really wants to do is help other women see that, you know, it could be a particular, um, career choice, um, give people that opportunity at least to know that that is a kind of path that you could take. Um, but it's very, very different than saying, "Okay, we're going to have a quality of outcome," which is we definitely need to have, you know, fifty percent or twenty percent of this, you know, segment of society, because then it leads to the question: Well, actually, why are they there? And so I think that's one of the, the dangers by actually actively saying we are going to have, you know, a particular percentage. Um, it creates that question, and and actually, if you are a person of color, or if you are a woman, or whatever, um, then. Actually, you don't want to be in a situation where you're thinking, well, actually, I'm in this because, actually, I'm filling a quota. You want to know that, actually, I'm, I'm in that situation because you deserve to be in that situation. And that's the tension, I think, that's been created.
1: Yeah. There's also a sense, isn't there, of the, of the walking on eggshells. Like, so even there, Michael, you, you you just used the term person of colour, I think. Mm. Didn't you? Mm. So isn't that what the FA chief got fired for using? So you would certainly well, no. be fired. If you happen to be running the FA, F- F- you're gone uh brother yeah but but and that's because that's the, the phrase that we were have, have weren't allowed to use for many years here in the u k mm-hmm. in the u s has kind of now become more prominent and it's just you have to constantly rechange your vocabulary based on what the mm-hmm. the kind of latest um magisterium of of uh of racial or uh diversity mm-hmm. and inclusion sort of mm-hmm. yeah, terminology requires and, and I think that's a a real problem because again it gets into that problem of us of us. It engenders a kind of cynicism in people looking on. It also, actually, like I was saying earlier, it gives fuel to the fire of the really abhorrent racists Mm. who who are going to only get worse um, as a result of this. So, if you over, yeah, if you you over egg this issue and make everything about race, or indeed in the same way that people will will make things about uh, about gender or or about sexuality or, any other kind of, you know, all of these sort of intersectionality issues. If you do that, you're, not, you're only going to make the problem worse usually in the long run because you're going to keep making society more and more sectarian, giving people a certain identity, uh, on wh- a hill on which to die, which, which which can't actually ever truly be sort of extinguished. It's a kind of a perpetual dying on this hill. And, and when, there's, when you get over this one, there'll be another one, another one, and another one. Um and so it's very very difficult but and it is say it doesn't help the problem at all um so yeah, but we do look at these things cynically through this through this lens and it causes all sorts of other issues one, one tiny other thing uh, just to f- close off this sport link we are talking about obviously another thing we've talked about is taking the knee um mm-hmm. in culture recently this this process of um mm-hmm. yeah of, of identifying with the black lives matter symbol um, within sport and there's obviously various whohas about which teams or players choose to do that and which don't. England fans, some England fans booing England when they did that. And then of course, even some politicians Mm -hmm. um, speaking out and saying this is just a a gesture, um, which is actually not very helpful. And then football players responding, saying actually that's causing, making the problem worse. And so it's really difficult because you can't question certain things because there's these new, these new sort of ideological foundations we've been told are now absolutely sacrosanct and you can't touch them or question them. And as soon as you do, then you're showing that you're racist, this kind of thing. So, so it's a real problem because you would never, for example, say, so basically if you don't take the knee, the issue is you are you must be racist. If you if you if you oppose taking the or ask questions, you must be racist. And they say it's not a political thing, we're not identifying with Black Lives Matter as an organization, it's just a show of solidarity. Why don't you just do it? And you think, well, you just, you just it's just not that simple, is it? Because you would never do that for like a Nazi salute. Oh, I'm not really a Nazi. I'm just, you know, I'm just sort of identifying with the kind of good things that um, the Nazis have brought us in in 1930s Germany, bringing us out of the depression, um, bringing economic prosperity, supporting the family culture and, and things like this. Uh, it's nothing to do with pol- supporting the party. I'm just sort of showing solidarity for the kind of good in our nation and trying to not cause trouble. <laughs> Inevitably, um, any ideology, left or right, is going to um, cause these kinds of issues and if you don't allow individual conscience to question things I, it really, really does become very difficult and it does it, it does put a strain on things and it creates a more totalitarian culture however much we might overuse that term we did a whole episode on this of course mm. Um, mm. several episodes ago but yeah I think that that's part of the issue that we aren't allowed to talk about things when we do make que- ask questions of some of these sort of um, diversity quotas or the way that as you say Andy we've narrativized things in a certain way it breeds cynicism, and then you can't even voice that without being a part of the problem
0: mm. um yeah one one thing I think would be interesting to there's I think we've covered off the sport angle kind of well, but it's one of many because i think mm. I think there is a degree to which the issue of race has you know mm. permeated. Everywhere, right? You know, a book that we've mentioned on the on the podcast uh, several times in the past, and we'll probably put a link again to the show notes. Is um, you know Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay's books, uh, C- "Cynical Theories: How Universities Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity," really showing how how this becomes so widespread? But the the kind of common thread running through those, and you touched on it there a moment ago, Aaron, when you use that term intersectionality, which kind of floats around the culture, and it's one of those sort of slightly amorphous terms that seems to mean different things to different. People, but the idea that there's all these sort of you know sort of vectors of victimhood, and you find where they intersect and position yourself on them, on that point, and so forth. But it's the idea that victimhood is a thing that we all want to attain, right? To go if you can embrace that identity of victimhood. Maybe it's because of race, because of something you've you've experienced, either you yourself experienced racism, or your community has in the past, or if it's not that, then if you're a woman, you can obviously there's a whole feminist piece. If you're transgender, there's that piece. But even those of us who you know outrightly might not be able to find that way are still getting on the bandwagon you know men are climbing onto the bandwagon they go well you know we're being oppressed because you know women always say nasty things about us and we can't about them Mm -hmm. um you know i've come across you know upper class lawyers you know complain they're oppressed because people make lawyer jokes and it's horribly offensive and the list goes on and on and on Mm -hmm. and i i'm beginning to worry whether whether a society in which people encourage them are encouraged to place their identity in victimhood is going to end in a very painful place because it's always then going to set people off against each other because if you're a victim the only way I can get you know I can get anywhere is to either get myself on a level of victimhood or ideally if I can be more of a victim than you then I can go well Aaron's not really a victim I'm really a victim and then society is just fractured into smaller and smaller and smaller you know units of individuals all of whom have a chip on their shoulder again help us out here. Somebody is, 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 should as Christians, we be worried about victimhood as a basis of
2: identity? I think, I think we've got to be really careful, haven't we? Because on the one hand, like we do live in a culture where lots of people are victims of stuff. That's really, really horrific. And, and if we are seen in any way to be minimizing those experiences or ignoring those experiences, that's really, really bad, isn't it? That's really insensitive. It's really hurtful um and can add pain where there already is pain um so i think there's a real danger there we need to be really careful um but i think we want to say that's not the only aspect of our identity and if we then start grounding or we're almost encouraged to ground our identity in, in that that's a different thing isn't it so we want to acknowledge where there has been pain where there has been kind of a story that has led to the kind of current situation and i think that's really helpful isn't it to think yeah, you know, what is the backstory you know um, why why does this person feel the pain they do about this particular situation um but then not encourage that to become the narrative the basis um or the kind of the sole thing and so i think it's a it's a difficult tension to hold, isn't it? Uh, we don't want to ignore that story, but we also don't want to make that the ultimate narrative that everything else is read through
1: yeah i it's interesting i, I had a um I was talking earlier about an experience I had a couple of in America a few years ago um in, I was in Chicago for an academic conference and the year after I was in Baltimore. And this was before the events of Ferguson and indeed in Baltimore, uh, the events of Baltimore and Minneapolis, which happened in the last, over the last sort of, uh, six or seven years. Um, I, had, I had experience on public transport um, as the only white person on a bus in Chicago. Um, and it felt very strange mm-hmm. to, live, to to be here in this supposedly this country which is known as the land of the free mm. and where we 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 can mock or not mock we we can critique the idea of systemic racism when it's over egged in the UK mm. i think in the us you just the structures are unbelievably different um and, and there's actual reasons But it's very it's much more difficult to unknot some of those detangle some of those knots which are there the redlining in cities that kind of thing My experience on Chicago, I was there on the bus and I was being almost stared at, like, oh, what are you you doing here? You're white. Like, what are you doing on this poor person's bus? Mm -hmm. And the same happened on the subway in Baltimore. And I I was literally the only white person on the subway. I don't know if this was a weird aberration from the normal. I'm sure that we American listeners might be able to say, no, that's quite normal. Or you happen to be there on a weird day. But uh, it was a very strange uh, thing. And it wasn't only that. It was that the people, lots of the people I was observing looked really worse for wear. They, they, these were almost the destitute of society. and They were all black. Mm. Um, they looked like they didn't have adequate healthcare. Um, and all of the white people were above ground in the beautiful plush uh, boutique shops of, of, downtown, of, of the downtown area. And, and here we are uh, on, on the subway. I, I just went on the subway because that's, we just do that more often here in the UK. It doesn't seem to have a, it's just a cheaper way to get around. Um, and I just, thought, why is this the case? It, it cannot, it can't be just the case that the black people happen to be um, poorer. They just happen to have been less successful. It's nothing to do with race at all. And that just wouldn't. Those the statistics of that just don't add up. And, and and as you see, you know, in many people's lifetime, segregation was a real thing, especially in the southern states of the U.S., which is just an unthinkable thing for most people. How was that ever allowed to be a thing? Segregation, I and mean, you go back even further. How was slavery ever allowed to be a thing? So, clearly, there is a very slow and moving uh, progression away from the racist structures in uh, the US society, and, and many of them do still exist today. So, I do think it, it, uh, the way we talk about systemic injustices is, is problematic, but it depends on the context you're in, of course. And I think we in the UK. Like to ape the things that are going on in the US because we are sort of vassals of the empire in a way. Um, we like to—that's why the George Floyd thing blew up here. We wanted to read George Floyd in to everything going on here, and it right. just it unnecessarily. Uh, obscures the reality because in the, in the US, and as I said, many places it really is a problem. Um, and of course, there are problems here. There's pockets of the UK where, where there will be systemic racism. But is it to the same level as a nation which had segregation in the 1960s and which has situations where you can you can be where the, the disparity between rich and mm-hmm. poor? Seems to have a racial element to it, so I just think some of that has to be borne yeah. in mind. There,
0: I think. I think one of the. Go, on, Michael, and I'll say something. No, Michael,
2: just to pick up on that, I was just going to say, yeah, I think there is a real danger that we kind of just impose um one culture on another, and just kind of forget that there's real differences. And I think, you know, if you're a black person in America, there is a generally a real shared narrative, like you say, within our lifetime of real oppression and injustice um over the last fifteen hundred years and i'm not saying there's never been injustice or oppression here in the uk but but actually it's a very different story um and actually even just to group black people in the uk together is if you can kind of homogenize them as one group of people actually you know i've got a friend who was working in a church in south london and the majority of the population were black and he said you know there's no way you could just kind of homogenize them as they're the black people that would be an incredibly racist thing to do they mm. were incredibly diverse in terms of the cultures mm. that they came from some of them had been born in the UK some of them had just recently moved to the UK some of them identified very much as being British some of them very much as as being from different countries in Africa and so on and so the way that we kind of just like talk about black people is you know he just said actually mm. that in some ways is quite racist in the UK because we're forgetting there's a, a real different story and a diverse story here. Mm.
0: Well, I was going to say, and I think that links quite well to, to something I wanted to throw, throw into the mix too. The, the other thing I've, I found intriguing watching this kind of story unfold over the last, uh, I mean, not just the last few weeks, last week or so, but obviously the, the kind of the sort of tendency to see everything through the lens of race has been going on here for a while now. There's a couple of things I think is interesting. One is going back to social media, because of course, social media geographically flattens mm. something that, you know, the George Floyd thing is a very good example. You know, mm. absolute tragedy and, you know, Police officers now face justice. But that happened in the States. But because it took off on social media and the, and, and, and tweets no-no geographical boundaries, suddenly you've got people getting very angry about it here. Whereas, like, well, it's very sad, but I'm actually more angry about, you know, some injustice that's happened down the street in my local town, or I should be potentially, because that's something that affects my community. I can do something about um, is the first thing. But then the other thing that intrigues me, is I, I don't know the right word for this, so maybe I, I've got to find a language. But I'm almost thinking of the kind of reverse racism that goes on, and you touched on it there, mm-hmm. Michael, that we lump mm-hmm. people together. You know, mm-hmm. one example might be, um, you know, we touched on this in last week's episode, looking at as a, uh, uh, the sorry episode before last, looking at how to destroy a denomination, mm-hmm. and the way that you know certain you know denominations here in the West that want to appear appear progressive suddenly get quite embarrassed about the fact that people in other parts of the world don't believe as they do in the West. And so we ignore them. Witness in Mm -hmm. that case the Methodists on redefining marriage. They didn't invite the Africans to that theological discussion Mm -hmm. because, bless them, Mm -hmm. they're not sophisticated enough. But that never gets called out for the racism that it it is. Mm -hmm. And then there's this tendency by some, you know, sort of political camps I think here uh, in the West to sort of assume they own ethnic minorities so I've mm-hmm. had, you know, I have friends who are, you know, conservative voting and leaning who are, who are black, who tell me, you know, the, 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 the vitriol they get sometimes from their own, their own sort of, you know, community, because it's assumed, well, if you're black and British, mm-hmm. you're obviously voting labor. Well, actually I don't vote labor. My friend would say I vote conservative. I'm, I'm small conservative. Oh, well, but surely as an ethnic minority, you should, you you know, you mm-hmm. should be part of our tribe and that tendency to try and use race to corral mm-hmm. people for political ends that worries me, too, because that's not yeah. coming out of a concern for justice. We saw it in recent elections here, didn't we, in the UK up in, um, I forget what that by-election was, up in the north somewhere where uh, where Labour particularly played the race card. In that case, try and get all the Muslim community to vote for oh. them, not really caring about the issues of, you know, what it means to be Asian in the inner cities, but agreeing, oh, if we play the right language here, we can get this lot to, as a tribe yeah vote for us and that's notice they, they don't use this sort of anti-lgbt agenda
1: to help to get the muslims on board
0: probably but... <laughs> enough <laughs> the labor's absolutely. views on lgbt were, were played were very much played down yeah. really? i can't yeah. conceivably think yeah. why that
2: would be it's yeah. interesting like in the american presidential election was was biden quite just saying like if you vote republican you're not really black yes, like, yes. Was told, it was it was biden wasn't it and just that kind of sense oh. of like you know to be black, therefore, means to agree to a certain kind of political kind of agenda. It's interesting, actually, when Black Lives Matter really took off um, last year, I chatted to a couple of friends of mine who were black and just chatted to them about their kind of reflections on it and and what they were thinking in terms of how that it kind of developed over here. And one of them just said something very, very interesting. He said, um, he said well, do you remember when it last became a big thing? And I said, well, no, not particularly, like in terms of like which year. And he says, well, it was four years ago. What's happening this year that happened four years ago? And it took me a moment to think. And then I realized, well, of course, it's an American presidential election. He says, this issue becomes politicized by the left in America, particularly um, as a vote winner. And you think like you're using people, basically, you're using a very genuinely huge issue to basically make a political or try to win a political argument. And you think, be really careful, as you say, Andy, that we're actually kind of Reverse racism—we're actually using people to our own ends.
1: It's funny. It's interesting. Obviously, it's worth noting. Obviously, on that, Michael, that the right mm. will do the same. Obviously, yes, they, yes, they, they will use whatever cause um mm. will help their own. The Republicans do exactly the same, and yeah. they, they they kind of play into the certain conscience of, of certain votes they want on board. And mm. Trump certainly the same. But but you're right. That actually, mm. the, I think that maybe the more pernicious element, the reason why it feels more mm. problematic, is is the. Duplicitousness. Maybe there's duplicitousness on both sides, but mm. it feels like the moral uh, now. The sort of left feel like they are are presenting themselves as the moral witness to the world with the kind of issues mm. of justice. And mm. actually, if they're per- perpetuating racism or using black people in order to get power, that feels mm. like it's more ironic because mm. of the way that they um, mm. go about their business or the kind of manifesto they tend to bring. Whereas on the right, you could argue they're just. A little bit more upfront mm. sometimes about the fact that they, they want power because they want to make the world like this, whatever. So anyway, yeah. I think that that's worth noting. One thing as well that came to mind, Andy, you mentioned your, uh, you know, uh, talking about um, Shawshank Redemption and Morgan Freeman earlier. Uh, it came to mind. I, I remember one of my favorite, one of my favorite films was um, Die Hard with a Vengeance, Die Hard Three, oh, yes. which I try to, uh, I keep trying to um, get my wife to watch. I've managed to get her to watch Die Hard One and Die Hard Two playing them off as Christmas movies,
0: which they, of course, are. <laughs> we do a trade, Aaron. You need to say you'll watch Pride and Prejudice um, if she'll watch Die Hard with a Vengeance. And then, for me, Pride and Prejudice with zombies does count as Pride and Prejudice.
2: That's true, so, yeah. I <laughs> you in that. My marriage is that it would be the other way around, of course, so we break all the gender stereotypes, and it would be Rebecca desperately trying to get me to watch Die Hard at Christmas and me saying, no, I think it's too scary. So, yeah, they go. <laughs>
1: there you go yeah. Yeah, her favourite
2: that- movie series is Terminator.
1: Really, wow!
2: Yeah. Well, then the creator has actually started putting a uh, female leads,
1: haven't they? All, all the the female character becoming more prominent. Anyway, but the, the thing with *Diablo: The Vengeance* was the Samuel Jackson, who's brilliant in that, and of course he's a brilliant actor. Not that mm. we follow like have to say that. That's almost like a, a joke as well. That was a joke in the office, I, I recall. Um, the, the way in which racism is spoken about so ironically in the UK, by the way, because it's so for for most people, I still think is the case. It's such an abhorrent thought that you could mm. be racist. It's mm-hmm. it's ludicrous, um, but but we'll get onto the systemic thing maybe in a moment. But uh, um, it was in um, uh, Samuel Jackson. He's he's kind of big on on seeing the world through race. Mm-hmm. This was I think that mm-hmm. film was in the nineties, somewhere mid maybe ninety five or something. So it's way before critical race theory itself has become a popular um, a, a popular thing to kind of uh, mm-hmm. travail across uh, academia and then into popular culture. Mm-hmm. Um, He's making everything about race. He's bringing up his nephew to think through this, that white people are out to get you and you need to make your own way in the world because you're black and that's your huge, huge identity, more important than anything else. And Bruce Willis, John McLean, calls him out as a racist, which was quite a controversial thing to do, you'd think. And that's quite a long time ago, but it's effectively the same thing we're seeing today. So in a way, we just need to listen to John McLean more because there is a sense in which it does become actual racism and a white person should be able to call out racism, either from a black person or perhaps more prominently mm. from organizations, which may have a mixture of people in, who are trying to say that all mm. white people are benefiting from their whiteness without even thinking about it, without being conscious of it, um, because they're white and therefore they are, are part of this sort of ubiquitous mm. problem, which is uh, in the water, in the air, everywhere. Just whiteness is the problem. And we have all these conferences now about dismantling whiteness. I've seen it in the academy for years, and 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 that's something I've said before in this, one of the other episodes. I've been glad previously that this stuff stayed in the academy, out of harm's way. And now it's sort of seeped out onto social media and the rest. So, so it's a real yeah. problem. It does become.
0: Well, I was going to say. I think the uh, the academy is a bit like sort of a you know a Chinese virus research laboratory near to a wet market. That you know, sort of things. <laughs> you, you try and contain them, but there's a leaky pipe between two libraries, and before you know, it, the idea has leaked has a uh, well? it's a bit like actually i mean they um i think we talked about this in the previous episode i mean the book which i, I mentioned a few minutes ago you know cynical theories talks about the fact we you know we're living mm-hmm. through this age right now of applied postmodernism. that the kind of sort of the great architects of mm-hmm. of, of, of post you know played around with ideas and ivory towers mm-hmm. uh, and never i probably didn't even really imagine that anybody mm-hmm. actually would actually take this out and would then start saying that oh well, maybe mathematics is overly white and maybe we need mm-hmm. to you know, or maybe we need to think about decolonizing science. I mean, what does this what does this look like? Um, but I want to pick up. I want to. I think I want to tease out for a minute there, Aaron. This this idea you're right that is everywhere. That you know whiteness is the problem, and you know here as ours on a podcast, unapologetically we are three white guys, and I say that unapologetically because you can't apolo- you can't really apologize for a you know immutable characteristic. You know um you know michael no more chose to be born white than i chose to be born incredibly handsome and that you know other people just <laughs> get very you know, intimidated in my presence you're kind of uh, a victim uh, of your own
1: handsomeness in a way aren't you? I, I absolutely
0: am um, my, my you know my wife has had to carry a stick for a while to just to be you know to, yeah. to, to keep people away um but what occurred to me in that is i've read something recently where someone did try and unpack that and so well of course the thing with whiteness is that you know that's considered to be the, the norm and uh, if you don't measure up to that 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 norm then you're somehow considered not to be normal or to be second rate or or so on and, and so forth i remember reflecting on it, thinking actually on the one hand there is an element of truth in that if you are if the whole of community looks one way and you look a little bit different then it is there is going to be it is going to be tough i mean you think back to those mm. first you know black uh immigrants here to the uk in the 1950s and things to go it must have been incredibly tough when there wasn't this big you know community of, of, of people like you and you really did stand out i think now we are much more diverse but then what hit me is this again well okay isn't that a very myopic view though of of the of political sit of the world situation because if, of course if you go like you describe your experience there in the states but you know i've traveled to the middle east and mm-hmm. to go being you know the only british person in a, in a in a in a crowded room i mean my wife and i went you know on a trekking holiday in tibet a few years ago we were a very small group of, of of westerners and you know trekking through the back country and my word, we did not fit in. I can still remember a group of kids coming up to me in a marketplace in some tiny, like, you know, one yak town, uh, you know, in the foothills of Everest and literally sort of coming up and sort of licking their finger and rubbing my skin. They didn't ask me to just rub my skin because they obviously assumed I must have painted myself because I was this strange pigment uh, and not Mm. the kind of sort of of mid-brown that everybody was. Um, And yeah, you did feel slightly odd, but I don't think it's a white thing. I think there is an issue about... How a majority should behave in a way that we make a minority welcome, but transferring that language directly into racial terms—that's where I think the mistake potentially might be made. Rather than the more helpful, you know, how does a majority behave in such a way that the, a minority feels feels welcome, welcome and not excluded? How do, am I onto something
2: there? I think, I think yes, but also I've got a push. Probably push back on it, and I could oh, dude, you know, absolutely do push it. back. I need to push back say I've never
1: seen an Art Spanister face off. That's
0: what he's yeah,
2: yeah,
0: He's no, envious. I, I, he's just envious of my of my charm and good looks. Is
2: what it's it is. and tons I think something to come back on that, but I'm not going to. But anyway, <laughs> um, uh, no, no I, I guess what some people would say would be to say that actually, yes, there is that sense of being in the minority, but there's also a sense in which there is a history of oppression that has gone with that that makes that experience worse. So, you know, yes, you were in that time experiencing what it was to be a minority in that culture, but you hadn't got attached to that, all of the history of injustice that that culture had inflicted upon you. Mm-hmm. And that can happen in different situations. So I think that is kind of worth bearing in mind that there is a kind of added yep. layer in certain circumstances. And I think what I also sorry. want to say is that actually, while we're very, very aware of the horrific evils that were done, say in the transatlantic transatlantic slave trade, like the horrific evils of slavery are far greater than just that. Um, And so often we only see like one particular injustice through history. Mm. And we can forget that actually there have been horrific injustices committed by different races upon different races. And it is certainly not just white on black. Um, It can be all sorts of different mixtures of of varieties.
0: That's where I wanted to go actually and, mm-hmm. and, and sort of connect to perhaps a, a last area in our last mm-hmm. few minutes to, to to think about, you know, yeah, you're right. I think that probably would be the difference with that example I I gave, but to, to expand mm-hmm. it, um, you know, I travel a lot across the, well, before COVID quite a lot across the Middle East because <laughs> of my specialty is Islam. And to mm-hmm. go, the fact is there was, as well as the West African slave trade run by Europeans, there was the East African slave trade run by Muslims, uh, millions uh, mm-hmm. taken into slavery that way and in fact racism arguably is baked into into islam Muhammad owned slaves um and in fact across the middle east the colloquial term the common term often Mm. used in arabic Mm. for an african person is the word abd in arabic which means Mm. slave so that's deeply baked in and of course if you Mm. go to china look at the way that china has behaved to the tibetan uh people to go my word that's not cultural appropriation that's Mm. cultural obliteration Mm. And I think you're right. Wherever we look, we see this. And so I suppose the question I'd like to talk about in the last few, few minutes is it looks like racism is, is pretty endemic, actually. it look, It's very easy to point to examples in one's own culture. It gets a bit problemat- more problematic when you bring the camera lens out and go, oh, truth. Actually, it looks like human beings have this terrible habit of ganging up on those who look different and it's sometimes it's white on black sometimes it's brown on black sometimes it's black on but i mean the, the, the you can't you can't limit it to just one mm. one axis how the heck do we get beyond this because as christians we've obviously done a lot of diagnosing of the problem mm. and talking about the problem over the last 40 minutes but we want to push beyond that how do we how do we change this do we does it just require enough you know lectures by you know on white fragility or enough hashtags or something mm-hmm. is going to solve mm-hmm. this how do you actually begin to remove that racism from a person's mm-hmm. heart, or a person, or a culture? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Can i just
0: jump in before I, um, I'll set. I'll, I'll set Michael up for a gospel. Set Michael up for the, for the gospel. A, a, yeah. a, a, a gospel the spam
1: spam or something as the evangelist. So work on your sermon as I'm as I'm talking, Michael. But I'll just say uh, I want to mention a couple of things. You mentioned white fragility, Andy, and just to sort of uh, not necessarily to re-diagnose, but just to say a couple more things in in lieu of that. And then I'll mention something about. Uh, The way the gospel is even spoken of, which is somewhat problematic. So obviously the the book you mentioned there, White Fragility, um, by, is it Robin D'Angelo? I think Mm -hmm. that's been like a multi, you know, massive bestseller. It's influenced loads and loads of people, loads of policymakers. It's Mm -hmm. um, influenced the way that unconscious bias theory is, um, is brought out across loads of institutions that i've kind of had to go through that kind of training in inverted commerce, and now it's being critiqued which is kind of helpful but one of the really scary things about that book which is that white fragility is kind of the concept of of white people like us by the way defending um ourselves against the charge of racism systemic racism we're not conscious of it we might be but that's part of the problem you're not conscious of it and that's why you're racist that's why you're kind of part of it because if, if you really knew the, the depth of the problem if you really knew your privilege for being white um, you would, you would sort of know and you'd want to repent. And so we need to show you, we need to bring you to enlightenment on this. And she said one of the, uh, he sort of, Robin says one of the, um, behaviors associated with white fragility is rational argument. This is an actual argument that's made in the book. Rational argument is a typical way a white person responds to being accused of racism. And I just it beggars belief to think that people actually put this in books mm-hmm. and write about it, and academics use rational arguments to say that rational argument is a behaviour. It's a behaviour. <laughs> it's not like so. So you literally you're not allowed to respond at all with reason because then you're you are part of the problem. So the only way to respond is to agree with the person telling you this. And that's, you know, Dan Strange has an interesting phrase about worldviews, which you could sort of relate to ideologies that you don't see. You often see your worldview or ideology. You see with it. You see with your worldview that's how you see the world it's almost like here have this lens we're going to give you a lens to see everything through the way we want you to see it. and if you disagree it just proves the point of of this lens it's really a very clever uh, cleverly done and um, but the, and i've seen this for years with as i said earlier with in academia there's another kind of a black theologian called An- anthony reddy as in the technical term black theologian he is black but he's a black theologian um And he often has uh, made the argument. I've seen the similar kind of paper given at various conferences. Mm -hmm. I can always predict what the paper is going to be and and how it's going to play out because it's the Mm -hmm. same argument, the same rational, supposedly rational argument again and again. That the gospel itself, um, or the theologians we read, the theology we do, is itself racist. So we've been reading white theologians. We've been reading as Protestants we read Calvin and Luther, uh, these kind of great theologians who have influenced the way we think, and that's how we read the Bible so therefore everything we think we know even about the gospel that was supposed to be recovered in the reformation is coloured by racism because at the same time in the 16th century we um, had um, you know let's say portuguese and, and british sort of explorers and racism uh, occurring and colonization beginning um and therefore because that was happening at the same time that's all part of the system all part of this narrative that connects all the way through to the present day in terms of the systemic racism so everything is literally coloured by racism mm-hmm. if you will and i think that's Kind of part of the problem, because then you can't, evangelicals, so it's very hard to respond to that. I think people say, well, the very doctrines you believe are, as you say earlier, Andy, mathematics is racist. Justification by faith is racist because it gets white people off the hook because they could say, oh, we're forgiven. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Well, that's very easy for you, John Newton, says the black theologian, uh, because because you've got much to be uh, forgiven for. Uh, the poor black victim who's a, who's a slave hasn't done as, as uh, committed as much sin as you have so it's easy for you to sing "Amazing Grace" because you then don't have to pay restitution uh, for all of the uh, terrible, you know, sins of whiteness. So, so there's things there where really this is such a big gospel issue, which is why we need to talk about it. So anyway, that's my kind of last thing to say on the diagnosis
2: side, Michael. No, just just on that, I was thinking there's a kind of profound irony that one of the people who's influenced, you know, European theology for a long period of time has been Augustine, who certainly wasn't you know, a white European, um, but, uh, versus by the by, I think, you know, and we do need to wrap up in a second. Andy is going to be walking out the door and closing down our podcast. He's just, he just showing us a whiteboard of the time he to stop, but it is a whiteboard. Speaking in four minutes time. Um, but, but when, Things kind of really kicked off last year. I, I read a number of books, um, both by people who were Christians, people who were not Christians, people who had different kind of political views on it. Um, uh, one book was by a guy called Tom Terrence, who I'd had the privilege of meeting a few years ago, who had been one of the most incredibly racist people you would ever have met. So he was living in America, he was um, uh, on America's kind of most wanted list, uh, he was involved in a terrorist organization, uh, incredibly racist, incredibly evil, incredibly bigoted. And then dramatically converted to Christ whilst in prison. Um, and and then his whole life turned around. So um, suddenly uh, he is seen for doing so much good in prison that he's finally released and, and works you know, to bring about reconciliation and, and incredible stuff. It was an amazingly moving story of the difference the gospel can make. But I also read another book at the same time, and I'm going to get her name probably pronounced wrong, but Igioma Ulu, Ulu. Um, and I was recommended that I should read this book. So you want to talk about race? And it's fascinating because I was reading through it, and there was a number of things that I kind of disagreed with. But, but there's one particularly interesting thing that she said um, in that book. Um, and she said, um, she said, this book will not tell you how to get unabashed racists to love people of color. I am not a magician. And so what she was really trying to do in the book is say, well, how do we dismantle systemic systemic kind of injustices and so on? Now, I'm not saying that's not an important thing to do. But I thought, what an interesting acknowledgement. Mm. She recognised that she couldn't, in a book, try and get someone who was a racist to stop being a racist. Mm. We can try and change structures and systems, but we can't change people's hearts. She says, I'm not a magician. And I thought, but the gospel really can change people's hearts. And having read Tom Terence's book, One of the Most Racist Men in America, and How the Gospel had Changed His Heart, was just profound to say, actually, as Christians, we've got something wonderful. And it's actually changed hearts that then changed societies. It's interesting, William Wilberforce is remembered for abolishing the transatlantic slave trade here in the UK. But he said that God has set before him two great um, uh, Jobs, I guess I can't remember the exact word he gave it, and um, not just the abolition of slave trade, but the reformation of, reformation of morals. By that he meant the revival of Christianity, because he recognised you could only change systems if you also changed hearts, and we can't divide those two things. We've got to keep them together, and the gospel does. Hmm. And I think it's not quite time to finish, so I give Andy the time to say goodbye. No, well that's that. That is great,
0: and um, that's a great place to land, uh, Michael. Just, i I've conscious. You know, we've we've covered so there's so many Mm. probably of all the topics we've done on Mm. one of the gaps. This is the one that's just a real challenge to cover because it Mm. links to so many other things. Mm. And uh, you know, uh, because of the racially charged age we live in, we say something Mm. and people assume that we've said that and haven't
2: said that, Mm. and therefore we think that.
0: Mm. We hope we've given you food. For thought um this is not an issue that's going to go away and i think right now our uh, you know we live in a society that needs peacemakers and there's a huge mm-hmm. need for christians to be people who listen to those on all sides especially those who have got uh you know historic or even contemporary mm-hmm. hurt and been on the receiving end of things um but that we are people who really seek to demonstrate what does peace look like and people who of course when our identity is rooted in christ back on identity michael i think the other thing the gospel does mm-hmm. is you don't then need to shout about your victimhood or your racial identity, or whatever your identity is, they're mm. still important to you, mm. but you can afford to uh, you know, step back a little bit and listen to the other because mm. your identity is based on Christ uh, who loves us no matter what mm. our race or gender or identity. And I think sometimes Christians who are fearful for some of these mm. conversations, I want to say, keep your feet on Christ mm because that means whatever happens in the conversation, however difficult things may get as we navigate these issues, you have certainty underneath you. Uh, and I think that's Tom's you know experience. So we'll put a link to Tom Tarrant's book uh, mm. in the show notes. We'll put a link to some of the other things we've referenced. We hope you found this helpful. Hope it's given you food for thought. We don't claim to have all the answers, but we hope to provoke you to think and explore and mm. dig into these topics. And I hope you come away from of the gaps going, mm. actually the Christian faith has so much to say to some of these big issues of the day. But it's been a pleasure spending 54 minutes with you so from uh, myself and uh, and Michael and Aaron it's goodbye for now and uh, we will be with you again in a week or two uh, where we'll take another tough issue and kick it around on Pod of the Gaps. Thanks for listening.